Merry Christmas, saints. Let's just, can we worship God? Can we just say Merry Christmas? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord, for sending your son. Thank you, Jesus, for being willing to come. Thank you, God, for choosing the manner in which you came. You could have chosen to deal with our separation from you in any manner which you decided because you are sovereign and you are Lord. But in your sovereignty and in your providence and in your grace and in your justice, you chose to deal with the situation by becoming Emmanuel. God with us. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I'm very thankful to be here with you this Christmas morning. We were having our huddle pre-service, and I, I said what was on my heart just to, you know, Christmas morning is for family. And I'm with my family this Christmas morning, and I'm so thankful that I get the privilege and honor to be here with you this morning. And you know, there's many things that can be said, have been said, will be said, will be repeated about Christmas. But one of the things that I find so striking, so awe-inspiring, is the fact that it is Emmanuel. We are celebrating God with us. And many times we think of, oh man, God came to be with us. And that's amazing. But almost every religious tradition, ancient religions that worship other gods, false gods, and different things, have some form of, 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 of mythology of their God coming to be with them. The Greeks, the Romans, many Eastern traditions... But the thing that makes the Christmas reality so distinct isn't just that he came to be with us, but it's that he allowed us to touch him. He came lowly, born in a manger. And I often say he is the only human being because he's fully God, and I'm, and I'm using the present tense Verbs. He is fully God and he is fully man. And so therefore, he's the only person to have ever been born who got to choose the exact circumstances under which and into which he would be born. And he chose to come in the midst of scandal, under the cover of shame, in the lowliness of a manger so that we could touch him and he could touch us. I'm very thankful this Christmas morning. And you know, today I'd like to just share for a few minutes with you this Christmas about the value of Christmas. The value of Christmas. What is the value of Christmas? You know, one of the things that you probably have undoubtedly heard and some of you have probably even said is Christmas has lost its value. Christmas has lost its meaning or, or they're, they're taking away the meaning of Christmas. And whether it's the commercialization of the season, whether it's people literally removing the name of Christ from the day and putting an X in there, 
It's very easy to become disgruntled and, and say they're, they're missing the value of Christmas. And so today my question is, well, what is the value of Christmas? For many people, it's sentimentality. And whether that sentimentality is rooted in the idea that, oh man, God is so good. He, he, he came as a baby and he, he did all this for us. And that's wonderful and it's true and it's great. But if we stop at sentimentality, our faith rests on emotion. We all know that that is very, very fickle. For some of us, the value of Christmas is in the tradition. This is what my family does. We've passed it on. We do this. It's about tradition. But if we just make Christmas about tradition, then we fall victim to and pray to the reality of allowing our faith to become religious. It's rote actions done out of obligation, not relationship done out of devotion and affection. And so today, I'd just like to share three things that I believe, and there's probably more, and if you've been in church long enough, you'll hear 18 million sermons about what the value of Christmas is. And so for today, today I'd just like to share three things that I believe is not just the value of Christmas, but what we should truly value at this time of year. Because there's nothing wrong with valuing the traditions in family. There's nothing wrong with valuing the sentimentality. And for all you kids and grown-up kids that like presents, there's nothing wrong with valuing gifts. I'm pretty sure Mary and Joseph put that gold, frankincense, and myrrh to good use. I guarantee you that we got a brand new baby. You want to send me some, some, some gold? I'm buying me some diapers. Guaranteed. All kind of swaddling clothes happening in the manger that day. But three things that I believe not only give value to Christmas, but should be valued at Christmas. And I pray that they bless your heart. And the first thing that I believe should be truly valued and adds value to Christmas is the reality that his first advent, I made it through four years of Bible college and several years of ministry before I knew what advent meant. <laughs> means his coming, his appearing. His first coming, his first advent gives us greater assurance of his second coming. In John chapter 18, verse 37, as Jesus stood before Pilate, prepared to perform what he came in the flesh to perform, and we'll talk about that here in a minute. Jesus says, for this person I was born, and for this person I have for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And that harkens back to a reality that Jesus shared in that intimate moment with his disciples in the upper room the night before he was to be betrayed in John 14, verses 2 and 3, where Jesus says, I am going to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place, I will come back to take you to be with me where I am. And he prefaces that statement by saying this, if it were not true. I would not have told you. The truth that Jesus has come into the world to save sinners is highlighted by the truth that he is coming back to take us to be with him 
And we can have, as Hebrews 6.11 says, full assurance of hope that he is coming back because Christmas gives us full assurance of certainty that he came in the first place. Titus 2.13 says that the soon and certain return of Jesus is the believer's blessed hope. And you know, at Christmas time, it's real easy to have our hope stray into other areas, isn't it? Heck, not just Christmas time, 365 days, 366 on a leap year, it's real easy for our hope to, to be in people, to be in places, to be in things. But the hope for those who trust in Jesus Christ is that no matter what is going on in the world around us or the world within us, we have the certainty that he is coming back. And Christmas gives us greater assurance of that reality because he came in the first place. Jesus' first coming ensures his second. The second thing that I think adds value and should be valued at Christmas is that Jesus coming gives us credible evidence. Let me say it this way. Jesus coming born in the flesh gives us credible evidence that the sin problem has indeed been dealt with in our lives. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 7 says, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. God prepared a body for Jesus that he might become the perfect sacrifice. Because the entire sacrificial system, it wasn't cutting it. Each year they would have to atone. Each day they would have to atone. And for so many of us in this room, we wake up every day trying to earn enough brownie points with God. Trying to be good enough. Trying to be smart enough. Trying to get God to like us. And I am here to tell you that before any of you did anything, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's why the message of the angels to the shepherd on that night so long ago was was peace on earth, goodwill towards men with whom God is well pleased. God is pleased to give himself for you. And because we're on this side of the cross, we can have full assurance in our lives that the sin problem has been dealt with. We're not trying to become righteous. Well, what do you mean? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And if we have God's righteousness, God is not in heaven trying to become more righteous and neither should we be. But what about this sin? What about growing in the Lord? That's called sanctification. But I'm here to tell you that I believe if we focus on the reality that I am already the righteousness of God, as the scripture says that I am, I would never in my life submit or subject myself to anything less than that reality of being the righteousness of God. I would no sooner drive a Bentley through the woods than I would run the righteousness of God through the muck of sin. 
And if we can grab a hold of that reality, I believe we would see things that we would not even understand. Jesus says, you've prepared a body for me. Why? Why is that important? See, this is, this is the thing that is important about the Christian faith. Because while all those other gods came, they did not come as fully man. They came as gods dressed up as people, but Jesus fully took on humanity. Why? Because Romans 8, 2 through 3 says that he did what the law was powerless to do in that he condemned sin in sinful flesh so that we, by faith, might live out the righteous requirements of the law. See, and while we spend a lot of our time trying to encourage and inspire and make you feel good about your day. I believe Christmas time is as good a time as any to say, God has already paid the debt and we get to live up to it. We don't have to try to be righteous. We are his righteousness. And when we realize that we are his righteousness, we'll start acting like it. And so I'm here to tell you today that the sin problem is dealt with because God prepared a body for Jesus. And Jesus did not leave anything undone because he said, it is finished. Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 9, it says, what do we see? Is Jesus. What we do see is Jesus, who for a little while was given a position a little lower than the angels. He's quoting Psalm 8 here. I want you to think about it for a minute. Jesus stooped lower, not only than he had to be, than he ever possibly could be, because there was value in what he was coming to doing. And we see that he stooped a little lower than the angels, and because he suffered death for us, he is now crowned with glory and honor. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. God, for whom and through whom everything was made, chose to bring many children into glory, and it was only right that he should make Jesus, through his suffering, a perfect leader, fit to bring them into salvation. Because you know what? If God just waved his magic wand over this deal, he would have stepped outside of his nature and character. But I want you to catch this for a minute. Jesus put on flesh and said, I'm not just going to wave a magic wand, send an order from heaven. I'm going to roll up my glory sleeves. I'm going to take my glory off, and I'm going to step into their situation so that I can fix it in the only way that it can be fixed. So now Jesus, verse 11, and the ones he makes holy have the same father. How many of you are glad today that the son came so that you could be a son or daughter? That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. I want you to catch that for a minute. The king and creator of all of the universe. Last night, I know most of you guys were, were getting ready for this morning because this was so much important, so you probably didn't see the Steeler game. I, I stayed up and watched it on your behalf as a mediator. <laughs> Spoiler alert, they won. They beat the Raiders 13-7 to in the last game heroics, just like Franco did 50 years ago. And many, of, many people spoke glowingly about Franco. Oh, and many, many people, some of you maybe even in this room, have pictures of you with him on their phone because he was just that kind of guy. 
Jesus came and he brought his phone and said, I not only want you to take a selfie with me, but you're my brother and you are my sister. That's what him putting on the flesh did so that he could, so that we could have the same father and so that he would not be ashamed. I want you to, Jesus is not ashamed of you. Maybe some mean old Sunday school teacher lady told you one day, you're making Jesus ashamed. I literally saw that happen one time. Saw a little kid being a little kid. Not a little kid needed a little discipline, but the kids is going to be kids. You're breaking Jesus' heart. I said, you're breaking Jesus' heart. She looked at me, because I was only newly saved. I hadn't been baptized into religion enough yet to learn to hold my tongue to my elders. I'm still working on that, by the way, so watch out. Because it was him who said, suffer the little children to come to me, isn't it? But he's not ashamed of you. If you have, and I would wager a guess, if you're, if you're in a church building on Sunday morning instead of around a tree in front of a fireplace eating pumpkin log and opening presents, if you're here today, there's a high chance that you are a follower of Jesus. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you are a son or daughter of the Most High God, and Jesus is not ashamed to say, that's my brother and that's my sister. That's why he put on flesh. Jumping down to verse 14 in Hebrews 2, it says, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, and this is the beautiful thing. This is what you got to get. The son also became flesh. I want you to catch it. Jesus didn't stay up in heaven and say, hey, all you bozos down there, you need to work real hard to become like me. He saw how helpless we were. And he said, Father, let me go down and be like them so that I can help them. Be like me. The son also became flesh, for only as a human being could he die. And only by dying, watch this, could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Isn't he amazing? That he literally left glory. A couple of weeks ago, I shared an illustration. How, how, many, how many of you really enjoyed the weather the last couple of days? Nobody? Yeah. We had, we had to, like, we got one in the It's like, yeah, this is awesome. How long is the list of people that you have that could have called you in the middle of the night on Thursday night or Friday night and said, I'm broke down, will you come and get me? How long is the list of people that you'd have got up and went out to help? Jesus did it for people that hated him. And he didn't leave a warm, snuggly house on a frigid night. He left the perfect glory of heaven and stepped into the fallenness of the world. Even while we hated him. He put on flesh. So that he could break the power of the devil who had the power of death. And only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. We also know that the son did not come to help angels. He came to help the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect 
like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. And since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. Why did Jesus put on flesh? So he could taste death for all of us. So he could identify himself as our brother and identify us as God's children so that he could be our perfect leader. And so he could do the one thing that would break the power of the devil and death and die on a cross for you and me. That's what we celebrate Christmas. Third and final value. Christmas reminds us that God often operates in humble beginnings. I'm going to have the worship team come on back up. God often operates in humble beginnings. I don't know how much of your Bible you've read. If, you're, if you've read it a billion times or if you've, you're just a chapter in and you're figuring this out as you go along or maybe it's been a long time or wherever it is, all I can tell you is this. When you look at the scriptures, one of the things that you can see time and time again is how our great and mighty God often operates in very humble and small beginnings because God's not contingent on anything. He's not dependent on anyone or anything. He does what he wants, when he wants, how he wants. And Christmas time gives us an opportunity to stop and consider that the king of glory chose to send his son as a helpless infant to a poor and outcast family, and that reality boggles my mind. He so wanted to be like me and you that he came just like many of us came into this world. And he definitely came in a way that none of us would have expected. And if we're being quite honest, none of us would have chosen that for ourselves. And that's one of the beautiful aspects about how God reveals himself within the Christmas narrative, within the scripture, and really within our day-to-day lives. He can do what he wants, when he wants, and how he wants. But he chooses to operate in humble beginnings and unforeseen circumstances. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 10, a scripture most of you are probably familiar with. Do not despise these small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. And this Christmas, I want to ask you, what small thing or what thing that appears small, it appears helpless, almost useless. I love Tobias, but he's essentially useless. Some of you are like, I went to Christmas, to church on Christmas morning to hear the pastor say his infant son is useless. Well, let's be honest. Other than the value that he adds because I love him because he's my child. That's the same way God sees every one of us. Because he loves us regardless, unconditionally, uncontingent upon behavior. I love him when he cries through the middle of the night. 
I love my wife for letting me sleep and handling it. I'm going to love him when he messes up and makes a mistake. But the reality of he is, right now, a baby, a little baby in a manger, seems insignificant and useless. But he was at that moment as much the fullness of deity as he is right now. And so what small and insignificant thing in your life seems useless, seems insignificant? You can't figure it out. You don't understand why it's there or how it's going to help. What small thing right now might be eating at you and nagging at you and you actually think it's a sign that God isn't with you this Christmas season? Can I just take a moment and encourage you that one of the values of Christmas is that he operates in humble beginnings. And if you could take a moment this Christmas season and not despise the small thing of whatever's happening, but do what the wise men did and Mary did and Joseph did and the shepherds did and eight days later Simeon did and Anna did and see not a helpless, useless baby, but to see the Messiah, the king of the universe, the answer to every problem that you have just because it's a seed doesn't mean it isn't going to become a tree. Just because it's small doesn't mean that God isn't working in it right now. What small thing do you need to look at with eyes of faith and say, that's a God thing, and I'm going to stand by faith and wait for that small, little, insignificant, useless thing to grow into the thing that God determined and designed to bring me to my destiny. Because Christmas brings us back to remember that God often operates in little tiny things, little small ways. You know, Mark 4 talks about a parable of the kingdom. Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like a seed that a man plants. And day and night he rises and sleeps, not knowing how it grows. But first comes the stalk, and then the head, and then the grain in the head. And it's a good reminder that that many times what God starts in our life starts in seed form. And it doesn't look like the thing we want. We want the fruit. I didn't ask for a seed, God. I asked for the fruit. God says, I work in seeds so I can bear much fruit. And the great thing about seeds is when you plant them, they start growing before you ever see it. They start shooting roots outward and downward before the stalk comes up. And even when you see the stalk, you're like, what's this? This is not the fruit I wanted, God. This isn't the relationship I wanted. This isn't, this doesn't look like the job I prayed and fasted for. This doesn't look like the breakthrough. And God says, let the seed grow. Let the seed grow this Christmas season, whatever small thing is happening in your life that you just can't figure out what God is up to, just by faith let it grow because the religious leaders missed it if there was anybody on the whole planet that should have understood what the star meant, what this meant, what that meant, it should have been the religious leaders but they missed it, don't be a religious leader this Christmas season 
be a young, scared teenage girl. Be a confused man who just found out your, your girlfriend cheated on you. Be a lowly shepherd that nobody ever wanted to talk to, but angels show up to talk to. Be someone that sees in the small things the great things that God is about to do in your life this Christmas season. That's how we end 2022, and that's how we start 2023. So what will you celebrate and value this Christmas? The glitz, the glitter, the silver and gold? Will you value the sentimentality or the tradition? And all those things are great. Or will you today, after hearing the word of the Lord, take some time today and every day after this and celebrate and value the fact that Jesus is coming again? Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming again. Look, when Paul started talking about the resurrection of the dead and the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4, he didn't say encourage people that there's a breakthrough about to come. There's a Cadillac about to come. There's a Boaz for you, Ruth. He said encourage them with words that Jesus is coming back. Because that, that is our true and blessed hope. Will you value this Christmas season? Will you value the the reality that the, the sin issue's been dealt with? It's been dealt with. What does that mean? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against him. The Bible says, I believe in the Psalms, that, 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 or actually in Jeremiah 31, it says that God remembers our sin no more. How dare you choose to remember something that the all-knowing one has chosen to forgive? And maybe today you won't allow that to be a license for you to live however you want to live and do whatever you want to do. But you will take that reality that I am a saint. I'm not trying to be a saint. I am a saint. I'm not a sinner saved by grace. I'm a saint. I've transformed from death to life. And you will allow that reality to say, how dare I ever do anything with my life, something that is not befitting the very righteousness of God? How would I ever allow myself to be subjected to anything lesser than what Jesus died to give me? Will you value his second coming? Will you value the reality that the sin problem has been dealt with? And when you value the reality that he's working in the small things, He says in Isaiah, behold, I do a new thing. It springs up even now. Do you not perceive it? Here's the truth of that. It's not whether or not God is or isn't doing something. He's doing something. He is. The challenge is, do you perceive it? Do you see it? Do you see a useless baby in a manger? Or do you see the coming king who reigns and rules over all time and over all space? Can I pray with you real quick? And then Pastor Ben's going to come up, close us up. But can I just pray for you real quick? Heavenly Father, I thank you this morning. I thank you this morning that, that you have 
dealt with sin and sinful flesh, that you didn't wave a magic wand, that you came and you walked as us and you lived as us. And even though you were tempted in every way as us, you did not sin. And therefore, we have a faithful high priest who is able to both sympathize with us in our weakness, but offer help and strength in our time of need. And so God, I pray right now for those who are struggling, for those who need not just your sympathy, but your true dunamis power to help them in their time of need. God, we know by your coming in the flesh and by your subsequent death, burial, and resurrection that you are able and willing to help. And I ask you to dispense and to distribute that to them right now. And Lord, I pray in Jesus' name, as you dispense and distribute that help, that sympathy, that love, whatever each and every one of my brothers and sisters need this morning, that they will receive it not as what they thought it should be or how they would want it to be, but in the way that you sent it. Because God, we now know today that you have a habit. I actually think it's your good pleasure to operate in humble beginnings in unforeseen circumstances. And so, Lord, I pray right now that as we receive that help, we wouldn't say, hey, this, is a, this, is the, this isn't the help that I wanted. We'll say, this is exactly what I needed. And just like Mary and Joseph nurtured the baby Jesus so that he could grow and be our Messiah, we're gonna nurture whatever that small thing you're putting in our hands right now or whatever that small thing that you're already doing. We're gonna nurture it, we're gonna help it grow, but we're gonna trust that that seed is gonna bear fruit and we're gonna rejoice and thank you for it in advance because you're good and we trust you. God, I just bless each and every person who made their way out here this morning to celebrate you. In Jesus' name. Thank you.